My name is Greg Kodrowski, and this is my podcast, Theology 101. I like to study the Bible, and I don't think the Bible is really that difficult to understand. For the most part, it's really pretty simple, and simple is better. So if you're like me, and you want to know more about the Bible, or if you just want to hear more about the Bible, stick around. And if you want to know more about me or check out my pedigree, Google me or visit my website, theology101.net. Okay, Merry Christmas. We're going to continue with our special Christmas podcast. When was Christ born? Was he born on December 25th or not? And if not, which is what the Bible says, not, then when was he born? Um, And I think we can come to a pretty good conclusion. We're going to start doing that right now. We are going to start looking at uh, the first administration of Zacharias in the temple. And uh, we're going to take a good good long look at this because this is where we see the, the, the bulk, the large amount of uh, evidence, biblical evidence, historical evidence, and a huge amount of theological evidence supporting the fact that Zechariah in in Luke chapter 1 is serving during the first week of his course uh, during those first six months of the year. So I'm going to say it again. I know I said it several times at the end of the last podcast. I'm going to say it again. I know the charts are in Spanish, but I'm going to put a link in the uh, description for this podcast, a link to the chart for this first administration. If you would just take a look at it, you can kind of get a visual understanding of what we're dealing with. We got the Jewish months number one to twelve from top to bottom. Each month has four weeks, so there's four divisions in each each one of the months. And then you can see references. You know, Luke twenty one twenty three, Luke one five, Luke one fifty six. It's easy to see. It's uh, L U C in uh, Spanish and L U K in English, so it's not that big a deal. Okay, not that big a deal, and just kind of get an idea. Uh, to to of where we're going with this, a kind of a visual, instead of just uh, listening to me blather on about this huge abstract concept. It's easy to see in charts and 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 outlines. So take a look at that. It it will help you. I know it'll help you. And uh, if I had the time, believe me, believe me, I would get this translated into English. But I simply don't have the time. And since my my main ministry is in uh, is in Spanish. And that's where I want the the focus of my my time and effort to be. However, because I'm here in the United States in Kansas City where we have great barbecue, um I would like to do something in English and if this is a blessing to anybody, um man, I want to get it out there for you and and give you something to chew on, something to think about. So, here's what we know. Okay, this is kind of a review of what we've seen to kind of get ourselves prepared. The first month of the Jewish year is the month Nisan. It's also called Abib. This is the month of the Passover. We saw that in in Exodus chapter 12. We know according to Luke chapter 1 verses 5 and 8. We know that Zacharias is a priest of the class of Abiah, and he is the eighth class, okay? That is 1 Chronicles 24.10. There were 24 different classes, and he is 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8. Abijah is 8, and so he serves during the eighth week, okay, during the first six months, and then the eighth week of the second six months, so twice a year, according to his course, according to his group of of priests, that division he's in. But we also took into account Deuteronomy 16.16. Do you remember what we saw in Deuteronomy 16.16? Okay, there are three great feasts. Okay, when all of the uh, the male Jews had to go up to Jerusalem, and um, I am going to 
forget what those are in in English. I'm going to look at the passage so I don't stick my foot in my mouth. Um, Three times a year shall all thy males appear before the Lord thy God in the place which he shall choose. He chose Jerusalem. And so we have the Feast of Unleavened Bread. That is the feast during that, that time of the Passover, during the first month. We have the Feast of Weeks, which is the day of Pentecost, which is the first week of the third month. And then you have the Feast of Tabernacles, which is the third week of the seventh month. Uh, one of my favorites, the uh, prophetic pictures in that 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 cluster of feasts in the, the seventh month is just fantastic. It's it's something fun to look at. So um, those are the three feasts, the three great feasts. The, the first one being, of course, that the Feast of uh, Unleavened Bread during that, the time of the, the Passover. Passover was on the 14th of Nisan, and then you have the, the Unleavened Bread in the uh, on the 15th and the 16th, and then you had um, the, the first fruits that followed. I think the first fruits was on the 16th. So all of the the details for those feasts are found in, in Exodus 12, and then they're, they're in Leviticus 23, all right? The second one was what we call Pentecost, and it was it was celebrated on the sixth day of the third month, Sivan. And all the Jews would go to, 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 to celebrate the, the, the feast. This was um, during the, I said, the first week of the third month, okay? It was the sixth day of the month, so it was during that first week. And then the third of the great feasts is the Feast of Tabernacles, and of course you had the Feast of Trumpets first with the uh, on the first day, and then you had the uh, the Feast of the, the Day of Atonement, which came later on the tenth day. So those happened in the first week, the second week, the third week was a full week of celebration on uh, that Feast of Tabernacles, and so from uh, Sabbath to Sabbath, from from Saturday to Saturday, and all this all, all the priests would be present for each one of those uh, three great feasts. Okay, so in addition to their two weeks according to their courses, their two weeks according to their divisions, they had to also work during the great feasts because of all the people that would be there, and they needed the priests and the Levites, so they would report to uh, to the temple, the tabernacle up in Jerusalem. And so with that, we understood that, okay, Zechariah, he might work up to five weeks each year, the three great feasts, and his two weeks uh, according to his his class of Abiah. Now, one other thing that we looked at were, was, was this idea of, of the Jewish months, Hebrew months, the Hebrew calendar. And every month uh, was a little different because they didn't count days. They, they used a lunar month, okay? So from full moon to full moon, that's why you see the, the Jews celebrating what they call the new moon. Uh, it's because they would, they would count their months by the moon. So from full moon to full moon was a month according to the Jewish calendar. It's, uh, it's not precise um, like our calendars would be today, where we, you know, we count days, minutes, seconds, you know, milliseconds and microseconds and nanoseconds and all that craziness. Um, theirs was more of an experiential calendar where you just kind of, you know, you did your crops in the, in the springtime, in the summer, and you harvest in the winter or in the fall, and you waited in the winter, and, and basically each month was, you know, moon to moon, and, and that's, that's how the calendar worked. So that means that there's a little bit of, of adjustment to make for, for solar years, and there's a little bit of adjustment to make with, with other elements of translating one calendar to another. We are not going to get into those details. I read a little bit on it, and it kind of gave me kind of a, you know, a, 
a brain aneurysm. It, it, there's there's details out there. If that interests you, man, have at it. There's so many theological um, articles and journals that have been written in books and whatever. There's tons of information out there. If you want to see how the calendars worked back in back in the day, uh, you can certainly do that. For our purposes here, we don't need to. Um, with what we have as far as just 12, 12 months, and we're going to take four weeks of each month generalizing, saying that there's four weeks. Obviously, there's a little more, but we're not going to worry about that itty-bitty little bit that kind of kind of gets us off. We're just going to go in, in generalities because with the generalities, we can get really, really close um, to some very, very specific dates. And then once we start looking at the theological evidence, it becomes it becomes more evident uh, what date God is pointing at in Scripture as the date of the conception of the Lord Jesus Christ and then his his birth. okay? So with with that in mind, we're going to start uh, start unpacking this idea um, of the the first administration of Zacharias in the temple. And I'm referring to his ministry during the week of his um, course, the course of Abiah. I'm, I'm referring to that as his ministry, his week, his administration. So don't get lost in the different terms that, that, that we're using to refer to the same thing. This is his first turn. If they take turns each week, this is the first turn of the year for his, uh, his class of Abiah. Um, and it is basically, we're going to see it's the second, second week of the third month is when, when he goes up to, to serve in the temple. Okay, it's the 10th week of the year. 10th week of the year, second week of the third month. So how do we get there? Well, if you take a look at the calendar, and you've got uh, in the Hebrew calendar, the first month, second month, and the third month. The first month is Nisan, the uh, second month is Ivar, and the third month is Sivan. Okay, with that, you've got four weeks in the first month, four weeks in the second, and four weeks in the third. So we've got, if we're looking at the first three months, we're looking at 12 weeks. Okay, the first two weeks are covered by the first two classes. Okay, the first two classes in in, uh, 1 Corinthians 24, I think it's verse 7 where it starts. You've got those first two classes. They're going to work during the first two weeks. The third week is the week of unleavened bread. So this is one of the great uh, feasts, a feast of unleavened bread from Deuteronomy 16, started with the Passover, and then you had the feast of unleavened bread, and then all of the priests then would work that third week of the year. Okay? So then starting with the fourth week, we go back to the classes. And since we had the first two classes in the first two weeks, everybody works the third week. Well, then on the fourth week, it's the third class. It's their turn. And so that's the fourth week of the first month. During the second month, you had the fourth, fifth, sixth, and seventh class, okay, because there's no great feast during the second month. But then there's another great feast on the first week of the third month. That's the Feast of Pentecost, which was celebrated on the sixth day of the third month. So that's during that first week. So all of the priests have to work that week, and then we start back over, going back to the the the, uh, the classes, okay, the divisions, in the second week, and then that's the eighth class of Abiah. That's, that's Zacharias, okay? So Zacharias is working during the uh, the tenth week of the year, second week of the third month, okay? And, and if you just think about it, he's in the eighth class, Okay, so if we look at these first three months up to that eighth class, 
we not only have eight classes, eight weeks, we also have two great feasts. We have the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and we have the Feast of Pentecost. So you have to add those two in there, because all of the priests serve during those, those two weeks during the great feasts. So you have those two great feasts, and then you have eight classes. So basically, to get up to the eighth class, you're talking about 10 weeks, because you got to add in those two great feasts. So you add in those two great feasts, and basically you're on the 10th week of the year. Four weeks in the first month, four weeks in the second month, two weeks in the third month gets you to the 10th week. So the second week of the third month is the week that we find Zechariah serving in the temple in Luke chapter 1, verse 5. There was, in the days of Herod, the king of Judea, a certain priest named Zechariah of the course of Abiah, and his wife was of the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. So he's serving of the course of Abiah. Verse 8 says, And it came to pass that while he executed the priest's office before God in the order of his course. So he is serving in the order of his course. It's not one of these big feasts. It's not one of the great feasts. It's in the order of his course. So we are assuming in this study that we are looking at the first time he serves during the year. We'll look at the second one later in the second podcast, okay? So with that, we've determined, okay, he is working during the second week of um, of the third month. And if you look at the, the chart that I have in Spanish, you can see that. It's month number one, number two, and number three. And then you have on week two, you can see Luke 1, 5, and, uh, and verse 8. So that's where Zechariah is serving in the temple. That's when he has this discussion with Gabriel, and, uh, and Gabriel strikes him dumb. And so after that, now here's where we're going to start throwing in some details. After that, what happens? Okay, well, after that, um, verse, in just a minute to find it, he goes home. Um, verse 23, verse 23, Luke 1, 23, it came to pass that as soon as the days of his ministration were accomplished, Zacharias, he departed to his own house. Now, here's where you kind of got, you, you, you compare Scripture with Scripture. Here's where we're going to start looking at some biblical evidence, some biblical evidence and some historical evidence. We're going to pull in some, some historical evidence, some, some evidence of uh, using Bible maps and whatnot. Now, look at verse 39 and 40. Luke chapter 1, verse 39 and verse 40. Verse 39 says, and Mary arose in those days and went into the hill country with haste into a city of Judah and entered into the house of Zacharias and saluted Elizabeth. Okay, Now, this obviously is after the angel has revealed to Mary that she is going to conceive by the Holy Ghost and give birth to the Messiah. So we're actually looking at something six months after the conception of John the Baptist. Now, what we want to see in this passage is that after Mary receives the, 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 the news from Gabriel that she is going to give birth to the Messiah, okay, that's verses 26 to 38, it says she arose and went into the hill country with haste into a city of Judah. And that's where she went into the house of Zechariah and Elizabeth. So Zechariah lives in the territory given to Judah. You remember back in, in Joshua, they divided the land among the, the 12 tribes. After the conquest of the land, they divided it according to Lot. Judah got his, and Benjamin got his, and, and they divided it all up, right? Well, in each of those divisions, 
Joshua chapter 21 says that Israel set apart 48 cities for the Levites and the priests. So if you look at a map and map out each one of those 48 cities, you are going to find that there are three cities, three cities that are in the hill country of Judah. Okay? Three countries or three. I'm looking for a pen. I'm going to have to write down some some English uh, words here. I've got the names of the cities in Spanish. Um, Joshua 21. So if you want to jump back to Joshua 21 and take a look at this, you'll find there's there's three of the 48 cities were in the mountains, the hill country of Judah. Every all the other cities were outside, either outside of Judah or outside of the hill country in Judah. There were three cities. The first one was Hebron. Okay, that's uh, Joshua 29. Uh, especially in or Joshua 21, especially verse uh, verse 11. It says that's Hebron, okay? Hebron. And then in verse 14, you find the other one, Eshtimoah. Eshtimoah. And then you find in verse 16, Judah. It's J-U-T-T-A-H. I'm probably going to pronounce that like Judah, and it's going to sound like J-U-D-A-H, Judah, but it's not as Judah. So when we look at a map, You've got these three cities. Um, think of, um, if you look at Jerusalem as your your point of departure, because Zechariah is serving in Jerusalem, he's got his house in the hill country, um, in a city in the hills of Judah. So he was he is a priest. He's, he's living in one of these 48 cities that were set aside in, in Joshua 21 for the Levites and for the priests. And it says it's one city in the hill country of Judah. So there's only three options that we have. Okay, we've got Hebron, we've got Eshtimoa, and we've got Jutah, all right? Hebron is the city closest to Jerusalem. Eshtimoa is the city farthest away from Jerusalem. Jutah is in between the two, okay? The Bible doesn't say which city they lived in. The Bible basically just says they lived in a city uh, in the hill country of, of Judah, and so we've got three different options, uh, three different possibilities. So because I, I haven't found any indication whatsoever of which city he actually lived in, we're just going to use um, Utah as our uh, as our city of reference. Why? Well, because it's kind of the average between the three. All right, Hebron's closest, Eshtemoa's farthest. So if we pick Utah, then we're kind of basically hitting in the middle. Okay, Utah is about 45 kilometers from Jerusalem. Yes, I said kilometers. I don't know how many miles that would be. Um, what are we talking, 30 miles? Um, whatever. So 45 kilometers. Uh, it, it's a ways. It's a walk. Okay, And we need to take into consideration uh, what it says in verse 7. It talks about um, Zacharias in Luke 1.7. Uh, talks about Zacharias and Elizabeth, and it says that they had no child, and that Elizabeth was barren, and it says they both, Zacharias and Elizabeth, were now well stricken in years, okay? They're old folk. Uh, they're, they've, they've lived a long life, and God says they are well stricken in years, not just stricken in years, but well stricken in years. And so 
when we take a look at, you know, Zacharias and his service in the temple, we need to understand that it, he did not go home, he did not get to his house immediately after that week. You have to allow approximately one week for him to get home before John can be conceived. Because number one, he could not travel during the, the, uh, the Sabbath. Okay, he would work his turn from Sabbath to Sabbath, even though the other division was already there and maybe already working, even though Zacharias was free to go, Jews could not walk, still cannot walk according to the law, uh, you know, beyond a certain distance on the Sabbath. It's, It's against the law of Moses. So he stayed in Jerusalem the Sabbath after his week of service in the temple. And then to get home from Jerusalem, we're talking about a 45-kilometer walk from Jerusalem to Utah in the mountains. Okay, It's not just a, a leisurely walk across the plains of Kansas. This is the mountains of Judah, the hill country. So it's up and down, and this poor guy is well-stricken in years. So 45 kilometers, I don't know. Um Three days, four days, maybe five days, and you include the the Sabbath that he was in uh, Jerusalem. You're looking at six days, so we're going to call it a week. So if you look at the uh, the chart, you can see the third month, Sivan, um, Luke one twenty three. He doesn't travel and during his his uh, his last Sabbath, and later to get to his house in the mountains, we're going to give him a whole week to get that done. Okay, four, five, six days. Uh, to get home, and then Elizabeth conceives. So that's Luke one twenty four. So you find in, in verse 23, it came to pass that as soon as the days of his ministration were accomplished, after the final Sabbath, he departed to his own house, which is in the mountains, 40, 45 kilometers away. He's an old man. It took him four or five days to get there. And then after those days, in the fourth week of Sivan, the last week of the third month, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and she hid herself five months. Okay, that's Luke one twenty four. So that that's the conception when when John the Baptist was conceived. It's after that last. It's after his week of service. It's after a week of travel, and it's during the fourth week, that last week of the third month, Sivan. And so once we nail that down. Okay, we take into account eight weeks for the eight classes. We take into account two of the great feasts, so that's two more weeks. We find that Zacharias is serving on the 10th week of the year, which is the second week of the third month. We give him a week to get home, and uh, and and then we, we basically put the conception of John the Baptist there on the fourth week, which is the last week of the third month of Sivan. Okay, so from here on out, it's very easy. Because all we have to do is count months. We're at the end of the the third month, so we got one month is month four, the second month is month five, the third month is month six, the fourth is month seven, and the fifth is month eight. So we have five months that the Bible says Elizabeth stayed in her house. She hid herself five months, saying, Thus hath the Lord dealt with me in the days wherein he looked on me to take away my reproach among men. That's Luke 1, 24 and 25. So that's at the end of the eighth month, okay? The month Bull or Marchesuan. 
Okay, that's 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 where we end up after those those five months. And now we can talk about the conception of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because Elizabeth, after she conceives, she stays in their house five months. In verse 26, we see that during the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy is when Marie, Mary receives the news from Gabriel that she will conceive by the Holy Ghost and give birth to the Messiah. Verse 26, it says, and in the sixth month. Okay, so we're talking about the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy. And it says in the sixth month. So it's somewhere within the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, which is the month Kislu, month number nine of the Hebrew calendar. We don't know when, we just know it's in the sixth month. And this angel, was, Gabriel, was sent from God into the city of Galilee named Nazareth. So she's living in Nazareth. Verse 27, to a virgin espoused to a man whose name was Joseph, the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. Okay, and then that's when he tells her in verse, uh, verse 31, Behold, thou shalt conceive in thy womb and bring forth a son, and shalt call his name Jesus. And then if you read on down to verse 36, And behold, thy cousin Elizabeth, she hath also conceived a son in her old age, and this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. So again, we see an indication that Mary receives the news, the announcement that she is going to conceive and bear the Messiah. She receives this news in during the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy. Okay, why is that important? Well, that's important because if you look again in verse 31, Luke 131, Gabriel says to Mary, Behold, thou shalt conceive in thy womb and bring forth a son. So she had not conceived yet. This is during the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy. During the sixth month, Mary had not yet conceived, okay? She conceives after the six months, okay? So after she receives this um, this announcement from Gabriel, verse, verse uh, 30, let's start in verse 37. Gabriel says to Mary, for, for with God nothing uh, shall be impossible. Mary said, Behold the handmaid, the handmaid of the Lord, be it unto me according to thy word. And the angel departed from her. In verse 39, Mary arose in those days, okay, those days of the sixth month, and went into the hill country with haste into a city of Judah. So we know it's a city in Judah, and it says, and entered into the house of Zechariah and saluted Elizabeth. So she goes into the hill country of Judah, goes to Zechariah's house, and meets Elizabeth, okay? Now, Mary is living in Nazareth. Okay, we know that Elizabeth, along with Zacharias, they're living in a house in a city in Judah in the hill country. Okay, we have chosen Judah because that's in, it's that's between Eshtemoa and Hebron. Okay, it's it's our it's our average city. Judah is about 100 miles from Nazareth, and so Mary goes with haste. Now I don't know how fast you can walk or cover. 100 miles, whether she walked or went by mule or, I mean, I don't know, okay? Um, but 100 miles is going to take her a while, right? 
Um, we need to understand, even though um, Zacharias and Elizabeth are well stricken in years, Mary at this point in her life could be quite young. She could be 15 or 16 years old, um, maybe younger, maybe a little bit older, but, but let's just shoot for 15 or 16, okay? So she can cover a whole lot more ground, a whole lot quicker than, than Zechariah, more than likely. But even so, we're talking about 100 miles from Nazareth to Utah. And I say that because she receives the news of the, the miraculous conception of Jesus in the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy. And when she arrives at Elizabeth's house, look what Elizabeth says. Verse 41, it came to pass that when Elizabeth heard the uh, salutation of Mary, the babe leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Ghost. And she spake with a loud voice and said, Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb. And so it appears that when Mary arrives at Elizabeth's house, she has conceived the Lord Jesus Christ. What does that mean for us? Well, it basically means that Elizabeth conceives, she spends five months in seclusion. Sometime during her sixth month is when Gabriel announces to Mary that she is going to conceive and give birth to the Messiah. Marie, Mary picks up and walks to, to uh, Elizabeth's house a hundred miles away. By the time she gets there, she has conceived. So we are going to place the conception of Jesus Christ during the first week of Elizabeth's seventh month. What do I mean by that? I mean that after six months, she received the announcement in the six months, she walks to Elizabeth's house. When she gets there, she has conceived the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, we're going to place the conception of the Lord Jesus Christ in the first week of the 10th Hebrew month after six months of pregnancy for Elizabeth, okay? So six months between the conception of John and the conception of Jesus. It's the fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth, and ninth Hebrew months. So Mary conceives during the first week of the month Tibet. That's the 10th Hebrew month. That week corresponds to our last week of the month of December. The first week of the Jewish 10th month, Tibet, corresponds to the last week of the Gentile calendar in December. So, it looks as though Christ was not born during the last week of December, Christ was conceived during the last week of December. Now, obviously, at this point, we're just looking at generalities. Obviously, at this point, we can't say, oh, 25th of December, that's when Jesus was conceived. Not yet, okay? But we're going to see later that there is sufficient theological evidence to sustain a position where we say, yeah, um, it really looks like the 25th of December, December 25th, is the day of conception, so let's, let's talk about that for just a minute, because we're going to get into the evidence later. December 25th, 
the last week of December, the, the miraculous conception of Jesus, when the living Word became flesh. That is, that's, what do we say, John 1.14. In John 1.14, that first phrase, the Word was made flesh. When? December 25th. When? During the first week of the, Jew, the, the tenth month of the Hebrew calendar. Now, in addition to Floyd Nolan Jones' book on the chronology of the Old Testament, you can find some very interesting information about all of this in the birth of Christ in Bullinger's Companion Bible. I really, I, I don't use Bullinger's Bible uh, much at all in my Spanish Bible. My Spanish Bible is a Thompson chain reference because it's got space in the margins. In the English, I find myself using Schofield's Bible more than anything else. I really haven't used Bollinger stuff uh, much at all, but I found some references in in Jones' book on the chronology of the Old Testament to Bollinger, so I pulled out my Bollinger's com- companion Bible, and I'm telling you, he's got some really interesting things to say. So think about what Bollinger wrote about this idea of December 25th. He said, "It thus appears without the shadow of a doubt." that the day assigned to the birth of the Lord, that is, December 25, was the day on which he was begotten of the Holy Ghost, on the 1st of Tibeth, or December 25th. And then he adds this about the celebration that we have on December 25th. He says, And the real reason is made clear why the 25th of December is associated with our Lord and was set apart by the Apostolic Church to commemorate the stupendous event of the conception of the Lord and not, as we have for so long been led to suppose, the the commemoration of a pagan festival. And so, if this is 100% sure historically or not, you know, we really don't know. But you really can't deny that there is a significant theological sense to December 25th. Christians during the first um, the first centuries, during the uh, the church age, they would have known about the the date of the birth of Christ. In knowing about the date of the birth of Christ, they would have known about the date of the conception of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so those first Christians during the, the, the first centuries of, of the, the church age could have commemorated the miraculous conception of the Lord Jesus Christ on December 25th, okay? Which could be the true date of the conception of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then our enemy, the, the devil, Satan, he corrupts that pretty quickly, pretty easily, through his church, the Roman Catholic Church, with all the pagan customs that they brought into uh, Christendom. And so the December 25th basically became what it is today. It's just this mess of, of lies and pagan superstitions and pagan traditions that kind of has a splash of Christ, Christianity on it, but nothing that really has anything to do with the Bible. 
But it appears, and we're going to look at more evidence in, in just a minute, it appears that Christmas, December 25th, could have originally been the celebration of the miraculous conception of Jesus by the Spirit of God. Okay? So with that in mind, now we can find out when John the Baptist was born. Okay? Because following our timeline, uh, Mary shows up after six months of, of pregnancy, after uh, Elizabeth is six months pregnant, um, versus Luke one fifty six says that she spent three months with uh, with Elizabeth. It says, And Mary abode with her, with Elizabeth, about three months, and returned to her own house. So three months later, that's about nine months now for Elizabeth, Mary goes home. Mary is three months pregnant. Elizabeth is nine months pregnant. She's about ready to pop. And it says in verse 57, Now Elizabeth's full time came, that she should be delivered, and she brought forth a son. So she does. She brings forth a son. If you follow the calendar and just count months, all that means is John was born during the first or second week of the first month of the Hebrew calendar. Okay, So if he was conceived the last week of the third month, all you have to do is count nine months. Okay, Month number four is one, month number five is two, month number six is three, month number seven is four, month number eight, five, month number nine is six, Month number 10 is 7, month number 11 is 8, month number 12 is 9. And so she comes to her full term at the end of the 12th month, and John is born soon after. So he is either born the first week or the second week of the following month, which is the first month, Nisan. That means John the Baptist was born around the time of the Passover. Okay? Very simple, very easy. So if Zechariah is ministering in the temple during this first week, his first turn as a priest of the class of Abiah, then Elizabeth conceives the last week of the third month, and we count nine months, and we see John the Baptist born right about the time of the Passover. And then the birth of Jesus Christ is easy. Okay, He is born six months after John. So we just count six months. We already know that Mary conceived six months after Elizabeth during the uh, the first week of uh, the month to Beth. Uh, that's the 10th month. She goes home when she's three months pregnant, Luke 156. And then Jesus Christ is born, Luke 2, 1 to 7. She had her firstborn Jesus Christ during the first week, during the first weeks, sometime during that general time of the seventh month, Tishri, it's also called Edenim, and that's basically during the time of the Feast of Tabernacles. Okay, So Elizabeth conceives, we have six months, and then Mary conceives. Mary conceives the first week of the, first, uh, of the tenth month, and then we count uh, nine months. So we got one month on the eleventh, uh, the, the twelfth month is, is month number two, count all the way down, and she comes to full term about the first week of the seventh month, the Feast of Trumpets. That means Jesus Christ could have been born during that first part of that month of uh, uh, Tishri, month number seven, okay, during the, the Feast of Tabernacles. So that's basically how we get to Jesus Christ being born during that time. Now, 
I'm going to quote Bullinger again. Okay, I'm going to quote Bullinger again because he brings out the uh, the calendars, and I'll give credit where credit is due. Okay, he gives a very interesting theological perspective. Very interesting. Uh, very theological about this this date. Bullinger says in, in his companion Bible, he says his birth, Jesus' birth, took place on the 15th of Tishri, September 29, thus making beautifully clear the meaning of John 1.14. The Word became flesh on the 1st of Tibet, or December 25th in the year 5 BC, and tabernacled, which is the Greek eskinosin, tabernacled with us on the 15th of Ethanim, or September 29, 4 BC. And then Bollinger continues, and he makes this observation. He says, the 15th of Ethanim, or Tishri, so that's the seventh Jewish month, the 15th was the first day of the Feast of Tabernacles. And then Floyd Nolan Jones, in his chronology of the, uh, of the Old Testament, he refers to what Bullinger says, and listen to this. Jones says that what, what Bullinger is pulling out is quite theologically aesthetic. Yeah, I'd say so. Um, very theologically aesthetic. The idea that Christ was conceived on December 25th and born on September 29th, the first day of the Feast of Tabernacles, yeah, it's very theologically aesthetic, and I want to show you why. So let's talk about some theological evidence for the birth of Jesus Christ, theological evidence for his conception on December 25th, and theological evidence for his birth on September 29th. Now, let me explain myself, because we're talking about theological evidence. And you might say, well, isn't theological evidence the same as biblical evidence? Yeah, no. Okay, when, when, I'm, when I mention theological evidence, what I want to refer to more than anything are the, the types and pictures in Scripture. Okay? Types and pictures in Scripture that can uh, refer to different aspects prophetically. Okay? With this theological evidence in types and pictures, I think we can can come to a, a very sensible, sustainable, faith-based position of saying that Jesus Christ was conceived on December 25th and born on September 29th. Types and pictures in the Bible, they're prophecies, and they point to either people or events in the future. The Feast of Tabernacles, okay, with the feasts that are immediately before it, the Feast of Trumpets and the, the, the Day of Atonement, the Feast of Tabernacles points to a time, a very specific time in the plan and program of God in the Bible. Okay? So if we're going to use theological evidence to sustain our, our hypothesis, if you will, our thesis, then, then we need to talk about where, where we land with biblical evidence and where we land with, with the historical evidence so that we know when we start using theological evidence and taking that step of faith to say, yeah, it really, really looks like that date, okay? 
So up till now, we've basically been utilizing the biblical text, what the Bible says, with a Hebrew calendar, okay, to, to pinpoint a general time frame for the conception of Jesus and then later his, his birth. So we've looked at biblical evidence, Luke chapter 1, 1 Chronicles chapter 24, and we've taken some historical evidence in the Hebrew calendar and some other things to kind of put together this chart and say, you know, it really looks like Jesus was conceived here and then born there, conceived on December 25th and then born on September 29th. It really kind of sort of looks like that. If Zechariah is serving during the first week of his, his class, his priest class during the year, then yeah, we can pretty much pinpoint when John the Baptist was conceived. He was conceived that last week on the third month of Sivan. And then from that week, we just count months. We got six months, and then Jesus Christ is conceived by the Holy Ghost in Mary. And then we count nine months from con- the conception of Jesus, and we come to the to the general time frame of his birth, which is during the uh, second week, second or third week around there of the month Tishri or Etanim, seventh month of the Jews, uh, during that Feast of Tabernacles, okay? That Feast of Tabernacles was from the 15th of the seventh month up to the 22nd. And so the 15th of Tishri in that year, which was probably uh, 4 BC, that corresponds to the 29th of September in our calendar, Okay. So 15th of Tishri, the first day of the Feast of Tabernacles in 4 BC, when Jesus was born, corresponds to the 29th of September in our calendar. Now, here's your side note, and here's your your homework if you want it. Um, Like I said, you can use computer programs. There's there's several of them out there. You can get on websites. You can uh, research it that way. You can get on um, Galaxy Theological Journals and do a search there to find out why we're saying that Jesus was born in 4 BC. People much smarter than I am have already done the calculations. I'm pulling it in from them. Basically, I got the date from uh, Floyd Nolan Jones in his Chronology of the Old Testament. He's got the references in his book. If you want to run it down, you're more than welcome to go run it down. I'm just going to reference it, okay? The 15th of the seventh month, Tishri, that first day of the Feast of Tabernacles, during the year that Jesus was born, which was probably 4 BC. It corresponds to the 29th of our month of September. Okay? That research has already been done. I am not going to run down all the details in this study. We're already in deep weeds as is. Okay? So, with the biblical text, with what the Bible says... This, this biblical evidence, and with the history, this historical evidence, the Hebrew calendar, Josephus, different things that we can pull in and compare with the Scripture, we can get to a rough, approximate time frame of the birth of Jesus Christ. And when we add to that the theological evidence, we can, we can point at a date that is very interesting and very theologically aesthetic. 15th of Tishri, the 29th of September, the first day of the Feast of Tabernacles. So let's evaluate some of this theological evidence. And I think the first thing that we need to do is just take into account the importance of the events we're studying. In all of history, 
how important is the birth of Jesus Christ? The birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. It splits time in two. We talk about B.C., before Christ, and then A.D., the year of our Lord, or after Christ. So it not only splits history in two, it splits eternity in two, because the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ is unique, not only in history, but unique in all of eternity. This has never happened before. This will never happen again. God became man and lived among us for 33 and a half years and then died a sinner's death to be resurrected. That happened once. It will never happen again. It never happened before. So when we start to evaluate theological evidence, we need to start with the importance of the events that we're looking at. All of eternity revolves around the cross. This is the crowning moment of God's glory, God putting himself and his attributes on display. The birth, the life, the death, and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. These events are important. So when we approach these events, we need to approach the events from a position and a perspective of faith. Faith in the words of God. That Psalm 12, verses 5 to 7, we see the promise that God will not only preserve his people, he will also preserve his words. And it says he will preserve his words forever. That's why every word of God is pure, Proverbs verse 35, and that is why when we take a look at the book of John, the last verse in the book of John, we need to take this into account. It says, John 21, 25, there were also many other things which Jesus did, the which, if they should be written, everyone, I suppose that even the world itself could not contain the books that should be written, amen. So, if all that could be written about the Lord Jesus Christ could fill the world, then what we have written about the Lord Jesus Christ is precisely and exactly to the Word what God wants us to have. That's why we understand 2 Timothy 3.15-17 that all Scripture is given by inspiration, that God inspired each and every word that we have. The Bible contains the preserved words of God, the ones that God chose from the millions and millions of words that he could have written that would have filled the world. He chose the words he wanted us to have. And so when we start looking and studying the birth of the Savior of the world, we are talking about God becoming man. And we see that when God becomes man, in our general general study, we see the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ fall within the time frame 
of a feast as important and prophetic as the Feast of Tabernacles, folks, we need to stop and pay very close attention to what God is trying to teach us. You can't simply discard this. You can't simply say, oh, well, that's, that's nothing. Are you kidding? When all we did was take the, the eighth class of Abaya and we counted 10 weeks, including two of the, the great feasts, and we started counting nine months, and then all of a sudden, after such a simple and general study like that, we see that Jesus Christ was born around the Feast of Tabernacles, you don't think we, should, we shouldn't take a look at the Feast of Tabernacles? You don't think that has significance? The weight of the importance of the birth of God our Savior into the world and the prophetic importance of a feast like Tabernacles, knowing that nothing happens by accident in the Scripture, that God chose the very words we have in Scripture. He chose them and He preserved them. And you don't think we ought to take, take time and pay attention to that? Oh, come on. Look at John 1.14. This is where we started our study. Let's just take a look at John 1.14. John 1.14, remember it says, The Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. Okay? So, Dr. Ruckman, Peter S. Ruckman, in his, um, in his commentary on the book of Luke, listen to what he says about this. Now, he refers in his, in his, in his he's writing about Luke 1.5 and 1.8. He refers to John 1.14 in that commentary, but you'll find this on page 16 of his Luke commentary. Dr. Peter S. Ruckman, referring to this same verse, John 1.14, in the context of Luke 1.5 and the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. Dr. Ruckman says, that's a verse on the incarnation of Jesus Christ. That's the living word taking on a body of flesh. Do you know what Simon Peter calls the body? He calls it a tabernacle, 2 Peter 1.13 and 14. So does the Apostle Paul, 2 Corinthians 5.1. And Dr. Ruckman continues, and he says, you see that word dwelt there in John 1.14? I'll read the verse again. The word was made flesh and dwelt among us. Dr. Ruckman says, that's translated from the Greek word eskenosin, which means tabernacled. Jesus Christ wasn't born on Passover. He was born at the Feast of Tabernacles. And so Dr. Ruckman says with clarity, very, very clearly, that Jesus Christ was not born during the Passover, but during the Feast of Tabernacles. Now, we're going to see later that the Feast of Passover is our second possibility of a date or a time frame for the birth of Jesus Christ. Remember, if uh, Zechariah is serving six months later, all we have to do is push our dates off another six months, and, and Jesus will see Jesus would be born on the Passover. So if Zechariah is actually uh, doing his work of the ministry during his second week of the year, according to his class of Abiah, then Jesus Christ was born during the, the Passover. We're going to see details of all that later in the second next podcast, the third podcast about this second administration of Zechariah. But what we want to see here, um, that what, what Dr. Ruckman is referring to, um, what we see uh, Bullinger refer to in his, in his um, 
in his companion Bible, is that there is evidence in the theology of what's going on in these events. We're, we're not see, Doc says, Doc Ruckman, he says, look, Jesus Christ wasn't born on Passover. He was born in tabernacles. Why? Because he dwelt among them. He tabernacled among them. And what he's doing is he's taking a look not only at the biblical evidence of the words, he's also taking a look at the, what the words say, what they teach, what they transmit. He's taking a look at the theology. And he's saying, no, Jesus wasn't born on Passover. He died on Passover. He was born at tabernacles. Why? Because he tabernacled among us. Okay, let's let's take a look at that. Let's let's take a look at that. John 1:14, this this feast of tabernacles. So Ruckman says again, Dr. Ruckman says, so the course of Abaya in Luke 1:5, like I said, this is from his his um his commentary on Luke, page 16. So the course of Abaya, Luke 1, 1 5 would make John the Baptist born at Passover. That's what we already said, what we already saw in our in our, our chart, with Jesus Christ being born six months later at Tabernacles. It was the conception of Jesus Christ that took place on December 25th, not his birth. So that's the conclusion Dr. Ruckman comes to. Jesus Christ was conceived on December 25th, and he was born six months later during the Feast of Tabernacles. So let's just take a quick look at John 1.14. John 1.14, because Dr. Ruckman says that this is a translation of the Greek word eskenosin. Okay, eskenosin. This word is translated five times in the Bible. In John 1.14, we saw it's translated as dwelt. The word was made flesh and dwelt, eskenosin, among us. He dwelt. Um, Revelation, we see several uh, several verses in Revelation contain the word. The first one is Revelation 7, verse 15. Bible says, Therefore are they before the throne of God, and serve him night and day in his temple. And he that sitteth on the throne shall dwell, eskenosin, dwell among them. Also in Revelation 12, 12, Revelation 12, 12, the Bible says, Therefore rejoice, ye heavens, and ye that dwell in them. Woe to the inhabitants of the earth and of the sea, for the devil has come down unto you, having great wrath, because he knoweth that he hath but a short time. It says in the verse that first part of the verse, Rejoice, ye heavens, and ye that dwell, eskenosin, dwell in them. And then one more, uh, Revelation 13.6, I'm sorry, we got two more. 13.6. Bible says, and he opened his mouth in blasphemy against God to blaspheme his name and his tabernacle and them that dwell in heaven. So it's dwell, eskenosin. Okay, it's a verb, eskenosin. And now the last one is um, Revelation twenty-one three. Revelation twenty-one three. Here we see, and I heard a, a great voice out of heaven. Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he shall and he will dwell, Eskenosin, with them, and they shall be his people, and God himself shall be with them and be their God. So Eskenosin, that verb, okay, in your Strong's Concordance is 4637. Eskenosin's the verb. That verb is based on the noun Eskenos, which is 4636. Okay, the word prior to Eskenosin. Okay, that noun appears twice in the Bible, eskenos. It appears twice. Two times used by Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Okay, This 
is the noun form of the verb that is John 1.14, dwell. 2 Corinthians 5.1 and 4. 2 Corinthians 5.1, Paul says, For we know that if our earthly house of this tabernacle, that is eskenos, the noun form of the verb eskenosin. Okay, eskenosin translated dwell. Christ dwelt among us, eskenosin. The noun it only appears twice, and it's translated tabernacle. For we know that if our earthly house of this tabernacle were dissolved, we have a building of God and house made not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. And then he repeats it in verse 4, For we that are in this tabernacle, eskenos, do groan, being burdened. Not for that we would be unclothed, but clothed upon that mortality might be swallowed up of life. So Paul uses the same word in the form of a noun twice, and it is translated in our Bible tabernacle, tabernacle. Now, Dr. Ruckman, in his, his, his quote here in, in uh, his Luke commentary on page 16, he made a statement that Peter also refers to the body as a tabernacle. That's what Paul is doing in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Okay, our earthly house, this tabernacle is dissolved. We're dead. We have a building uh, of God, a house not made with hands. That's our new body, our glorified body. He says we're in this tabernacle, in this body. We do groan. It's still a body made of flesh, okay, of sin. We groan. It's our tabernacle. Well, 2 Peter 1, 13 and 14 also refers to the human body as a tabernacle. Peter says in 2 Peter 1, 13 and 14, Yea, I think it meet. As long as I am in this tabernacle to stir you up by putting you in remembrance, knowing that shortly I must put off this, my tabernacle, even as our Lord Jesus Christ has showed me. That's 2 Peter 1, 13 and 14. Now that word Peter uses, tabernacle, okay, that is a translation of the Greek word eskinoma. That is 4638 in the Strong's Concordance, and it appears one more time in the Bible, in Acts chapter 7, verse 46. Okay, Acts chapter 7, verse 46. Acts chapter 7, verse 46, the Bible says, "...who found favor before God and desired to find a tabernacle for God for the God of Jacob." So we see it is a word that is translated consistently tabernacle. The human body, the body you walk around with, walk around in, is a tabernacle for your soul. It's, it's the same thing, it's the same word that is used for the tabernacle or the tent that the Israelites used in the Old Testament. It was temporary it was a tent, it was portable, it could be moved around. And so our, our, our bodies are tabernacles, tents, physical, portable things that can be moved around. They are tabernacles in which our souls dwell. So with these three Greek words, we see the same thing. When Jesus Christ was born in the form of a man, when he took on a human body, he made his tabernacle among us. 
He tabernacled with us. His body, just like our body, according to Paul in 1 Corinthians 5 and Peter in 2 Peter 1, his body was his tabernacle. God, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, was in a portable tent. His, his, the soul, the, 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 the God-man was in a body, a portable tent, a tabernacle. And so what we see is that the words of God, they teach us theology. They teach us, they give us knowledge of God. And that theology points to something very specific with regard to the birth of Jesus Christ. John 1.14, that the Word was made flesh, and then He dwelt among us, eskenosin, among us. He tabernacled among us. He made His tabernacle among us. And so the theological evidence found in John 1.14 points to the Feast of Tabernacles as the time of Jesus' birth, when he made his tabernacle, when he dwelt among us, when he tabernacled with men. That conclusion goes hand in hand with the prophetic picture that we see in the Feast of Tabernacles. So let's talk about the theological evidence that we can find in the Feast of Tabernacles. It's a prophetic picture of the coming of the Messiah. Now, the Feast of Tabernacles, being a prophetic picture, points to the second coming of Christ, what we understand today as the second coming of Christ, when he comes to the earth to establish his messianic kingdom on the earth. It is the kingdom that we call the millennium, according to Revelation chapter 20. So think about the, the, the group of three, the three, different, uh, fe- the three different feasts around this Feast of Tabernacles. First, the Feast of Trumpets, and then the Feast of the, the Day of uh, Atonement, and then the Feast of Tabernacles. The Feast of Trumpets, okay, the Feast of Trumpets. i got to run over here quick. We're already in an hour, and I'm going to keep you a little longer, but bear with me, okay, because this is the good stuff. This is where we see the theologic, theologically aesthetic aspect of, of the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. This Feast of Trumpets, Okay, it was a celebration right before tabernacles. Okay, it, it started off this this whole time of feasting, and it was on the first day of the seventh month of Tishri. Okay, first day of the seventh month, and I'm going to Matthew 24. So if you got a Bible and you're following along, um, find Matthew 24. This celebration, the Feast of of Trumpets, is a prophetic picture of the last the ultimate gathering of the nation of Israel to their promised land at the end of the tribulation in fulfillment of the, 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 the Palestinian covenant of Deuteronomy chapter 30. Okay, God made an unconditional covenant with them uh, for the land and for their gathering in the land, and he gave that to Israel in Deuteronomy chapter 30 in what we call the Palestinian covenant. And so the future reference is the gathering of Israel together at the end of the tribulation, right at the second coming of Jesus Christ, like we see in Matthew 24, verses 29 to 31. 
Matthew 24, 29, it says, immediately after the tribulation of those days, so this is immediately after Daniel's 70th week, shall the sun be darkened and the moon shall not give her light and the stars shall fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens shall be shaken. And then shall appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven, second coming, and then shall all the tribes of the earth mourn and they shall see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. Verse 31, here, here it is. And he shall send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet, and they shall gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. And God will end the global dispersion of the Jews, okay? Their chastisement under Deuteronomy 28, the last like eight verses of that chapter, the global dispersion, it will end according to the promise in the Palestinian covenant in Deuteronomy 30 verses 1 to 6. And it ends with the great voice, this great sound of a trumpet. It's, it's pictured in the Feast of Trumpets from uh, Leviticus 23, 23 and 25 during the first week of the month Tishri, the seventh month in the Hebrew calendar. Immediately following the Feast of Trumpets, you have the Day of Atonement. Leviticus 16 gives the details of the Day of Atonement. This is a prophetic picture of Israel's Day of Salvation after the Tribulation, during the Second Coming, at that very time. So, After the Feast of Trumpets, you had the Day of Atonement, which is on the 10th day of the seventh month. That's during the second week. So the first week, Feast of Trumpets. Second week, on the 10th day, you have the the Day of Atonement, and that was a a solemn feast. It's it's a prophetic picture of what happens uh, to Israel in uh, in the second coming. This is, well, if you want to see it in two places, this is is the, uh, the message that... Peter was preaching to the Jews uh, the gospel of the kingdom. You know, you see Peter preaching to her in the first uh, part of the book of Acts. He's not preaching the gospel of grace like uh, Paul preached. That wasn't revealed until Paul. You see that in Galatians chapter 1 and Ephesians chapter 3. So what is he preaching? Uh, Peter, in the first uh, few chapters here of the book of Acts, he's preaching what we call the gospel of the kingdom. And he's announcing the coming kingdom, the promised kingdom, the messianic kingdom, what we call the, uh, the the millennium, he's promising that to the nation of Israel if they will repent. That's based on the Palestinian covenant of Deuteronomy chapter 30. So in, in Acts chapter 3, verses 19, Peter calls out to, to the Israelites, and he says, Repent ye therefore, and be converted. That, that word, that wording is from the Palestinian covenant of Deuteronomy 30. He says that your sins may be blotted out. That's the atonement. When the times of refreshing shall come from the presence of the Lord, and he shall send Jesus Christ, which before was preached unto you. So what what Peter is preaching is the final day of atonement. What Israel understood as their day of salvation, that the day when the son of David comes back to establish his kingdom and Israel is, is cleansed, of her sins, all of them. That's Romans 11, 26, and 27. Listen to what the Bible says, Romans 11, 26, and 27. This is very important to understand the soteriology of Israel, the, the doctrine of salvation as it relates to Israel. Israel's salvation in the Old Testament was always something future. It was always something God promised them. They were waiting for their salvation. Their salvation in their life was something to be had in the future. It was always something future, future, future. Not like us. We look back. 
We say, yeah, I was saved in 1988. Yeah, God saved me. I became a Christian. I was sealed with the Holy Ghost. I was born again. It happened to me. It's done. But the Israelites didn't live that way. Theirs was a future salvation, always looking forward. And here in Romans 11, 26, and 27, we see that future hope of salvation is the second coming of Christ. It says, and so all Israel shall be saved. As it is written, there shall come out of Zion the deliverer and shall turn away ungodliness from Jacob. For this is my covenant unto them when I shall take away their sins. That is the ultimate, the last day of atonement for the nation of Israel. So we have the Feast of Trumpets, which is a prophetic picture of that final gathering of Israel at the end of the tribulation, at the second coming, to bring them into the land according to the promises in the Palestinian covenant. We find their 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 day of atonement when God atones for their sin and applies the death of Jesus Christ to them. That is when the new covenant of Jeremiah 31, 31 to 34 comes into full effect, and God blots out their, their sins at the second coming, and then God tabernacles with men. The Feast of Tabernacles, which was the third, the following week in the seventh month of Tishri. This is a prophetic picture of the millennium. The Feast of Tabernacles, which followed the Day of Atonement, was a feast that, that lasted a week, okay? From the 15th to the 22nd of the seventh month called Tishri. The Israelites, they were in Jerusalem. They were gathered at the sound of the trumpet. They, they, they went up to Jerusalem as they were ordered in Deuteronomy 16.16. 16. They celebrated the, the Day of Atonement. Their, their sins were washed away. And then they spent seven days in tabernacles in Jerusalem, celebrating with joy and rejoicing this, this Feast of Tabernacles. And so they built tabernacles. They're called booths or cabins or, or tents. or They were just these 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 temporary habitations that they would stay in and that they would joy and rejoice and have banqueting and celebration for a week in Jerusalem. The feast is a prophetic picture of a future time called the millennium. It will be a time of joy when the Messiah is on the earth. It begins with his second coming, okay, when he comes to reign for for a thousand years over the nation of Israel and over the Gentile nation sitting on the throne of David. Okay, this is in fulfillment of the Davidic covenant of 2 Samuel 7, and you see a prophetic picture of it in Isaiah chapter 2, verses 1 to 4. And that's why, that's why in Zechariah 14, you know, I don't know if you've read that last chapter of Zechariah, but this is why. In Zechariah 14, verses 16 to 21, you see that in the millennium, when Jesus Christ, the son of David, has returned, and he is sitting upon the throne of David and ruling over the world, over the nations, you find that all the nations, not just the nation of Israel, but all the nations of the world will come up to Jerusalem each and every year to celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles. Zechariah 1416, and it shall come to pass that everyone that is left of all the nations which came against Jerusalem shall even go up from year to year to worship the King, the Lord of hosts, to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. Why? Because it is a celebration of commemoration of the return of the Messiah. When the Messiah 
came to dwell among men when the Messiah made his tabernacle among men. The second coming of Christ happens at the first day of the Feast of Tabernacles. The Feast of Tabernacles is very important in God's prophetic calendar and in God's plan and program to establish his kingdom on earth. The Feast of Tabernacles, with the Feast of Trumpets before and the Day of Atonement before, they point specifically to the day when Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, comes to establish his kingdom on the earth in fulfillment of the covenant promises that we see throughout the Old Testament. And so when we're analyzing this theological evidence, folks, it is a step of faith, but a very small, short step of faith to see that the first coming of Jesus Christ is a partial fulfillment of these same prophecies. It is the coming of Jesus Christ to dwell among us, to tabernacle among us. Luke 130-33. Luke 130-33. When Gabriel announced the, the miraculous conception to Mary, look what he says about Jesus. Luke 130. The angel said unto her, Fear not, Mary, for thou hast found favor with God. Behold, thou shalt conceive in thy womb, and bring forth a son, and shalt call his name Jesus. Verse 32, He shall be great, shall be called the Son of the Highest, and the Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his father David, and he shall reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there shall be no end. You can't separate the first coming from the second coming. The first coming is a picture of the second, the second of the first. The first is is partial fulfillment of the second, and the second is the fulfillment of the first. They go hand in hand. And so when we take this theological evidence that we see in this first administration of Zechariah, folks, you, you have to take a step back and just say, wow, look what God did. The prophecies in the Old Testament point to the fact that Jesus Christ will come in his second coming, what we call that glorious coming, to establish his kingdom that we call the millennium, he will come the second time during the Feast of Tabernacles. And so it is theologically aesthetic that his first coming, his birth, when God dwelt, when God made his tabernacle, his body, among us, that his first coming, his birth, would happen during the same time. Bullinger brings the details of this out in his companion Bible. Here's what he said. The word tabernacle here in John 1.14 receives beautiful significance from the knowledge that the Lord of glory was found in fashion as a man, and thus tabernacling in human flesh. And in turn, it shows equally beautiful significance that our Lord was born on the first day of the great Jewish Feast of Tabernacles, that is, the 15th of Tishri, corresponding to September 29, 4 BC, modern reckoning. The circumcision of our Lord took place on the eighth day, the last day of the feast. And so, with this idea, 
of the biblical evidence, the historical evidence, and the theological evidence. We have more than enough evidence that points to December 25th being the date of Jesus' conception. And then September 29th, the first day of the Feast of Tabernacles, being the day he tabernacled among us, when the day he became a man among us, dwelt among us, made his tabernacle among us. I want to bring out two more things. Two more things, and then I'm going to finish. Now, you're going to have to do some, some research on your own here because don't have a whole lot of time to get into this, but I want to, here's some more historical evidence. I left this to last because, frankly, I just, you know, there, it's too much Catholicism, you know, wrapped up in them to actually give much weight, but it's still there, and I think it's interesting. I think it's really interesting, so I'm going to give it to you. Let me talk about two modern celebrations, two modern dates, uh, two modern holidays that would also sustain these two dates we gave for the conception and the birth of Christ. Okay, like I said, I don't give much weight to them. I left them for last um, because it's all just wrapped up in all the, the paganism of the Catholic Church. But let's just talk about December 25th, okay? This is a celebration of Jesus Christ. You, you can't get around it. They've tried to get around it. They call it the holidays. They call it the winter holidays, the happy holidays. And all of that, it's Christmas, okay? Christmas, December 25th. That word Christmas is a compound word. It comes from Christ Mass. Okay, now here's your Catholicism. Okay, Christ, of course, refers to Christ the Messiah, the Anointed One. Mass is like the Catholic Mass, but not in the sense of a pagan celebration, just in the sense of a celebration. Okay, a holy day, a holiday. Christ Mass means a celebration of Christ. I'm going to quote Bullinger again. Bullinger says in his, his Companion Bible, and the real reason is made clear why the 25th of December is associated with our Lord and was set apart by the Apostolic Church to commemorate the stupendous event of the Word becoming flesh, and not as we have for so long been led to suppose the commemoration of a pagan festival. So December 25th is a celebration of Christ, but look, it's not the celebration of his birth. Now that's the mess we get in with, with the paganism that came in through the Roman Catholic Church. No, it is a celebration of his conception. This is when, this is when the the word, the the, the word of God became flesh. It is when he was conceived. Okay? And it could be that during the first I don't know, years or centuries of the church age that people knew about this, that, that when he was made flesh, this is the, the conception in Mary of the Lord Jesus Christ, December 25th. And then the devil gets involved, and, and through his, his, his church, the Roman Catholic Church, he, he corrupted it, he twisted it, brought in all the pagan customs and all the pagan traditions, and, and we got the mess that we have, okay? And it's just about just erased every memory there is about the real significance of December 25th. It is the date that Jesus Christ was conceived in the womb of the Virgin Mary. It's not his birth, it's his conception. And then that means the next holiday that we need to talk about is the 29th of September. Do you know what they celebrate on the 29th of September? I never did until I did this study. It's kind of neat. I mean, like I said, it's it's all Catholicized and, and weird and twisted. Okay, it's corrupted, but 
with what we've seen in the biblical evidence, the historical evidence, the theological evidence, there's another holiday in the history of the church, not very well known, certainly not as well known as, as, as Christmas, but it is still very interesting, very theologically aesthetic in the light of everything that we've looked at in this first administration of Zechariah. And it is called Michael Mass. Michael Mass. That's all one word. Just mash it together. Michael Mass. Google it. There's a Wikipedia page on Michael Mass. Okay? It is, it is the, the holiday, the celebration of Michael and all the angels. That's the, that's the long term for it. Michael and all the angels. And from, from antiquity, it has been celebrated on the 29th, 29th of I got December in my notes. I got to change that. September. September. Okay. Um, 29th of September. I'm going to put a sticky on that. I got to change that because I already got that up on my website. Sorry. We'll, we'll get through it. Okay. Now, remember, if Zechariah was serving during his first administration, that first week, that was his week according to his turn by his, his, uh, his class of Abiah, Christ was born around the time the Feast of Tabernacles, okay? And while we looked at, at biblical evidence and historical evidence, the theological evidence points to that first day of the Feast of Tabernacles, the 15th of the 7th month Tishri, corresponding to the 29th of September, okay? And just by, I don't know, pure coincidence, let's say, Pure coincidence. There's a Christian, okay, and it's not really Christian, I get it, not really Christian, but there's a Christianized holiday that, that they celebrate on the 29th of September, and it's called the the, the feast of, uh, or the celebration of Michael and all the angels. Michael and all the angels. Now, obviously, the, the Catholic Church has corrupted it, and the Ethan Orthodox Church, which is basically the um, the sister of the Roman Catholic Church, is the same thing. They, they've corrupted this, they've twisted it, and and the the focus is off of Jesus Christ, and it's on the angels. That's typical, but just 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 okay. Think about this. Do a quick word study on Michael, Michael the Archangel. You'll find in Jude nine that he is the one who 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 contended with the devil for the body of, of Moses, okay? He wanted the body of Moses. You're going to find Michael has a very specific relationship to the nation of Israel. It is as if God assigned Michael the archangel as the archangel to take care of Israel. And as the archangel, he's got other angels under him, and he coordinates uh, spiritual warfare and all that. I, I don't know. But it looks as if Michael is the archangel God established over the nation of Israel. And so Michael contends with the devil for Moses' body. Moses, very important in the history of Israel, he is the one God used to, to make the, the, the people of Israel into the nation of Israel by giving them the Mosaic Covenant and the Mosaic Law. So Moses is one of the two witnesses that comes back in Revelation chapter 11. It's Moses and Elijah that come back to guide Israel to repentance during the tribulation. And so we also see why God wanted Elijah's body. He went up in uh, that that uh, chariot of fire uh, back in 2 Kings chapter 2. So got the body of Moses, got the body of Elijah, because they're the two witnesses that come back bodily in the tribulation in Revelation 1, or 11, 1 to 14. So again, Michael, dis disputing with the devil for the body of Moses, is very specifically related to Israel, Moses, Israel. Daniel chapter 10, verses 13 and 21, you see that Michael helped the messenger, the angel Gabriel, to get to where Daniel was to give him the message for Israel that he needed. Michael, 
very, very specific relationship with the nation of Israel. Daniel 12, verse 1, Michael raises up on the part of, of Israel during the tribulation. You see the same thing. Revelation 12, 7, during the tribulation, Michael and his angels, they fight against Satan and his angels to protect the nation of Israel. And so all of this shows us Michael has something to do very specifically with the nation of Israel and the work that God is doing in and through Israel to accomplish his program, his plan, his, his, what he is doing through men in history. Okay, So it appears that Michael and all the angels were present at the birth of Jesus Christ. Now think about this. Luke chapter 2. We know Jesus Christ was born, you know, uh, in in Bethlehem. You know the story. So it was that that while they this is uh, Luke two six. Um, now let's start. That's two six two seven, verse two. Uh, okay, Luke two seven, and she Mary brought forth her firstborn son, wrapped him in swaddling clothes, laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. And, they, and there were in the same country, around Bethlehem, shepherds abiding in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And lo, the angel of the Lord came upon them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them, and they were sore afraid. Now, the Bible says the angel of the Lord. Okay, We know, Bible believers, the angel of the Lord is a theophany. It is an appearance of God. Okay, in the Old Testament, when you see the angel of the Lord, that angel is often referred to as the Lord, referred to as God. Okay, here we see that the theophany has already been born, Jesus Christ. So we may assume the angel of the Lord that appears here is not the theophany that we see in the Old Testament. Could be, maybe not. It could be Michael. Michael the archangel. That there's a glory that shone round about them, and they were sore afraid. And the angel said unto them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. And this shall be a sign unto you. You shall find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. Okay, so we had the angel of the Lord. Now, whether that is a theophany, the actual appearance of God, or whether that's Michael the archangel, frankly, it doesn't matter. What, I, what, we're, what we're trying to look at in this context, in this context, is that there is a holiday in the history of the church called Michael and all the angels on September 29th the day that fits with the birth of Jesus Christ, according to the first administration of Zechariah. And so, whether or not the church in antiquity actually got it right, and it was Michael, or if they missed the mark, and it was actually a theophany and, uh, and God, it doesn't matter. What I'm, what I'm pointing out here is that the, the church from antiquity celebrated an angel, a very important angel, and all the angels, Michael and all the angels. We see all the angels in Luke 2.13, because after the angel talks about the birth of the, the son of David, verse 13 says, and suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace, goodwill toward men. 
So what do we have? Isn't it interesting that we see a holiday in the history of the church called the celebration of Michael and all the angels, celebrated on the 29th of September, which is the first day of the Feast of Tabernacles. It is a commemoration of the day when God made his tabernacle among men, the 29th of December. I did it again. I wrote December. It's in my notes. It's the 29th of September. 29th of September. That first day of the Feast of Tabernacles is the day when Jesus was born of the Virgin Mary and an angel, possibly Michael, but an angel, announced with a host of angels that Jesus Christ was born. Isn't that interesting that on September 29th, you have a celebration of an important angel, Miguel, Michael, and then all the angels. It is the celebration, Michael Mass, Michael and all the angels, that you have a celebration of something that happened during the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ when he came and tabernacled among us. It's simply a little bit more historical and theological evidence that points to September 29th. September 29th. And so... What happened? Well, the truth is, December 25th and September 29th, they've basically been lost under just layers and layers and layers of paganism in the Roman Catholic Church. Um, I've got a, I got a quote. It's pretty long. It's by, you know, it's another one of Bullinger's quotes. Um, I'll just read a little bit of it, and if you want, just pull out his 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 Bible. You can you can find it in his in his Bible. It's in the appendix. Uh, I think it's page like it's page 199, 198, around 200. You can find it in there. He says the fact of the birth of our Lord having been revealed to the shepherds by the archangel Michael on the fifth of Tishri or Ethanim, corresponding to September 29, 4 B.C., the first day of the Feast of Tabernacles must have been known to believers in the apostolic age. But the mystery of iniquity, which was already at work in Paul's day, quickly enshrouded this and the other great fact of the day of the Lord's begetting on the first day of the Jewish month to Beth, corresponding to December 25th, 5 BC, as well as other events connected with his sojourn on earth in a rising mist of obscurity in which they have ever since been lost." That Christmas was a pagan festival long before the time of our Lord is beyond doubt. By the time of the early part of the 4th century AD, the real reason for observing Christmas is the date for the miraculous begetting of Matthew 1.18, the word becoming flesh of John 1.14 had been lost sight of. If, however, we realize that the center of gravity, so to speak, of what we call the Incarnation is the Incarnation itself, the wonderful fact of the divine begetting when the word became flesh and that this is to be associated with December 25th instead of March, as for 1,600 years Christendom has been led to believe, then Christmas will be seen in quite another light. And many who have hitherto been troubled with scruples concerning the day, being as they have thought, an anniversary of a pagan festival, will be enabled to worship on that day, December 25th, without alloy of doubt as the time when the stupendous miracle, which is the foundation stone of the Christian faith, came to pass. And the Annunciation by the angel Gabriel marked the genesis of Matthew 1.18 and the first words of John 1.14, which is the conception of Jesus Christ, 
The announcement to the shepherds by the archangel uh, Michael marked the birth of our Lord. John 14 is read, as though the word became flesh and dwelt among us, were one and the same, whereas they are two clauses. And then he makes the distinction. The word became flesh on December 25th in the miraculous conception and tabernacled among us on September 29 in the virgin birth of the Lord. And so here, let's just finish this up, and this is it. We're done for this podcast. I told you it would be longer. The next one's going to be shorter, but this is the bulk of it, okay? This is the heavy lifting. Luke 1.5, Luke 1.8. We know that Zechariah, the, John the Baptist's father, was a priest, a, a priest in the class of Abiah, and he was serving in Jerusalem according to the order of his class. So he was serving in one of the, the, the weeks that, that was his turn to serve in the temple in Jerusalem. Okay, the class of Abiah, according to 1 Chronicles 24.10, was the eighth class of 24 classes of priests that served during the year. So, every class, every group, he had two turns every year, separated by about six months, in addition to serving during the three great feasts each, each year. If Luke 1.5 and 1.8 if they refer to Zechariah's first turn of his class, the first time he would serve during the year, then John the Baptist was conceived about a week afterwards. And according, accordingly, it was on the, the fourth week of the third month of Sivan. Six months after the conception of John, Mary conceives by the Holy Ghost during the first week of the tenth month of the month Tibet. So John is born, just counting months, John is born around the second week of Nisan, during the the time of the uh, Passover. Jesus Christ is born six months later, during the Feast of Tabernacles, that third week of the seventh month of Tishri. That chronology goes with two holidays that have been established since antiquity in the history of Christendom. December 25th. Now, obviously, this date has been corrupted. It has been perverted. Today, what is celebrated is the birth of Christ, um, you know, at Christmas. But it is muy, it is very probable that this day was the day Jesus Christ was conceived, the first week of the 10th month of the Jews. If Zechariah was serving during the first week, of his turn during the year. So the December 25th, the conception of Jesus Christ. September 29th, also a date, not a holiday, that has been corrupted because of the Roman Catholic Church. We see that uh, we've got me, uh, Michael and all the angels. It points to a day about the, the, the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. So it's the first day of the Feast of Tabernacles when an angel of the Lord, the angel of the Lord, maybe Michael the archangel, maybe not, but an, a very important angel, announces the birth of Jesus Christ, and later a multitude of angels appears and praises the Lord for what just happened, that God made his tabernacle, his body, among men. And so John 1:14 again contains two phrases that refer to these two two days. That the living word, and go back there and find it. Give me one second. John 1:14, the word was made flesh on December 25th when Mary conceived of the Holy Ghost. 
and the word dwelt among us, made his tabernacle, tabernacled among us, September 29th, the first day of the Feast of Tabernacles. So the first administration of Zechariah, his first week of ministry during the year according to the course of Abiah, is very theologically aesthetic. So we need to ask ourselves then, well, what about the second week? If we saw so much during this first week, according to the first week of his ministration, well, what about the second administration when he was working the second time? according to the course of Abiah. That's what I want to talk about in my next podcast. So thank you for listening to me. I kept you here over an hour and a half. And if you made it this far, thank you. And I will talk at you a little bit more. The next podcast is going to be shorter. It's going to be less than an hour. It'll be about 40, 45 minutes at most. Okay. So we just need to briefly touch on the second administration. It's going to be very easy since we did all the front loading with this first administration. You know what to expect. Going to be a short one. Wrap it up, tie up some loose ends and put a bow on it for your Christmas present. Okay. Merry Christmas. We'll finish it up in the next podcast. Thanks for spending your time listening to my podcast, Theology 101. Simple is better, and it's just not that difficult to learn the Bible so we can do what it tells us. You can find the rest of my studies in English out on my website, theology101.net. And if you do Spanish, tengo más de 15 años de estudios bíblicos disponibles en mi sitio web, teologia101.net. If you'd like to contact me, There's a contact page on my website. You're also more than welcome to visit me any Sunday that you wish. My church information is also out on my website. Remember what Nicholas von Zinzendorf always said, preach the gospel, die, be forgotten. Learn the Bible, do what it tells you, and come back for more Theology 101.